The scream started again today, a slow, silent scream of frustrated anger. Today I wailed at the wall of officialdom. Thy banks, O Barrow, sure must be the muse's choicest haunt. Else why so pleasing thus to me? Else why my soul enchant? too often, if you look at anthologies of Irish poetry from the 18th century, the 19th century, and right into the 20th century, you could be forgiven for coming to the conclusion that few, if any, women were writing poetry. Bell bugling brute, you threaten my identity. You flank my entrance and put out my light. But if you look more closely, you can find lost manuscripts and books and names that have been overlooked. What has brought thee, O speck of fire, speaking of love and the heart's desire to a land so dead? Their circumstances and what they wrote about are wide and varied. How I am held within a tranquil shell. The night the black news reached us across the sea from France. Pots are muttering on the lowest heat in the kitchen. A scuffle surely now ensues. They often wrote in spite of lack of recognition, lack of support, and not least, the eternal obstacle of daily life getting in the way. For spite of all sublimer wishes, I needs must sometimes wash the dishes. In this episode of Sublimer Wishes, we hear about the lives and poems of three women whose poetry has been rediscovered. Frida Lawton, whose life spanned the 20th century. Emily Lawless, who was born in the 19th century and lived until just before the First World War. But we start with Ellen Taylor, whose story brings us back further again, to the late 18th century. I'm on the banks of the River Barrow here in County Carlow. It's the second longest river in Ireland. It rises in County Leash and flows through Kildare, Carlow, Kilkenny and Waterford before ending up in Wexford. And if I move away from the weir, it widens out and the flow is a lot quieter. There are reeds along the sides and the grassy banks. I can see a heron over there. They tell me there are kingfishers around and otters, although there's no sign of them. And if I block out the sound of traffic in the distance and the occasional bicycle going past, it's probably not so different from what it was like around about 240 years ago when Ellen Taylor was here. Thy banks, O Barrow, sure must be the muse's choicest haunt. Else why so pleasing thus to me? Else why my soul enchant? Really, this sounds like a very conventional late 18th century poem, you know, um, with the um, evocation of the river, thinking about the muses as the classical um, reference, as the haunt of the muses the poet is about to compose as her soul is enchanted by the kind of pastoral vision before her. Professor Sarah Prescott, Principal of UCD College of Arts and Humanities. So it starts off very much kind of... We would not expect this to be the work of, of, a, of a poet of Taylor's um, particular position in society. To view thy dimpled surface here, fond fancy bids me stay. But servitude with brow austere commands me straight away. The second stanza 
makes us understand that her position as a poet in relation to the subject that she's writing and it reverses the expectations that I've just spoken of. She says, to view thy dimpled surface here, fond fancy bids me stay, all well and good. But then she says, but servitude with brow austere commands me straight away. So she hasn't been wooed there by the muses. She's going there to wash linen, we found out. So she's been commanded um, as a servant really to go and um, perform her labour by the river and she's kind of made this into the moment of a poem so there's this almost complete reversal of expectation in her work which I think is really interesting. Ellen Taylor is one of the poets featured in Irish Women Poets Rediscovered published by Cork University Press in 2021 and Sarah has written about her life and work. But apart from one slim book of poems published in 1792, there's not a lot known. Well, we know very little about her apart from the fact that she's alive, presumably, when her poems are published um, in 1792 in Dublin. Um, what we know about her is a kind of combination of what an anonymous editor says about her in the introduction to her volume and also the internal evidence of the poems themselves. Now, what the um, editor says about her the, in the introduction is that he noticed some of her poems in the newspaper and wanted to look into her life. And it was clear that she came from a very poor background. Um, her father was um, a cottager, which, which kind of, I suppose, means in the 18th century that you live rent-free on common land. And I think on the death of her father, she's left with her two brothers who seem to get along fine. And she has a younger brother who protects her and looks after to her. But then unfortunately the brother falls ill, she has to sell her books, things start going even more downhill. Ellen Taylor's brother dies and the first two poems in her book are dedicated to him. One is called simply by Ellen Taylor on the death of her brother, a fragment. She very much laments his passing. He was obviously very close to her, very important to her. But I think what's very interesting about this poem is that she assigns the kind of sensibilities to her brother of what we would expect, I suppose, to be of a kind of more upper-class kind of sensibility. And I think she's kind of making the point that her brother's soul and her brother's life is as important as anybody else by filtering it through this kind of literary medium and making him into the subject of a poem as well. Obviously, he was in a similar position to her. He would have died obscure, but to her... This is important enough to write a poem about. The reader is Paula Midlinchy. Thy labour's o'er, thy bitter cup is past. Yes, dearest of my soul, you've breathed your last. Thy feeble shattered frame has cast away and flown through mercy to eternal day. No longer pain or sickness dost thou dread. For thou hast found a place to lay thy head. How often silent sorrow have I gazed on thee, Since dire consumption on thee seized, Whose every stage did me of hope bereave, For well I saw twould bring thee to thy grave. No language can express my heartfelt pains, when parting with thy lifeless dear remains. A last adieu, a final cold embrace, 
no more to see thy best beloved face. Say, dear departed shade, say wouldst thou know the one that was thy sister here below, in whom beyond all else thou didst confide, by thee thy distresses to abide, whose name in trembling dying accents hung, to the last moments on thy faltering tongue. If she thy fair example should pursue, and learn to live and learn to die like you, when death's kind hand may guide her to that shore, where now thou art, there meet to part no more. The reason why Taylor went into service was precisely because of the death of the brother that she says is her protector. Um, and in the introduction, it says that she had to sell every article she possessed to look after him. And I think significantly, even some of her favourite books, which were given her by a friend in her neighbourhood. And she was so reduced that she then had to, as the introduction says, offer herself as a servant in a gentleman's family near where she lived. So she clearly couldn't rely on family, the very small family support she had, and had to go out and try and make a living for herself in order to survive. Ellen Taylor wrote a number of poems written from the servant's point of view, including written on Miss Porter during a lingering illness. And perhaps to our surprise, the picture painted is not necessarily unhappy. Although she says she lived in a servile state, she also says um, in the fourth stanza, my situation was to me no pain. So she obviously kind of got on well with the family. They were benevolent. She could kind of flourish there, obviously, because that's where she's, she's writing these poems. So in a way, it kind of enables her to write. And she also says her mistress is ever tender, good and kind. But when we think back to the poem on her brother, I think what she's also doing is commemorating Miss Porter, who's of a higher socioeconomic status, in the same way that she kind of commemorated her brother. So she's kind of saying these two people are as important to me regardless of my own position in relation to them as sister and as servant. So she's kind of cutting through those class distinctions, if you like, to have a more emotional relationship with her subjects. There once I lived, and though in servile state, my situation was to me no pain, nor did I then regret my sordid fate. For in that house, I could not feel the chain. My mistress, ever tender, good and kind, I there received her mild commands each day, nor did it once disturb my peace of mind, with utmost cheerfulness her to obey. She's not unusual in terms of, say, for example, Scottish and English examples. The introduction refers to Robbie Burns, who, of course, was the ploughman poet, very famously. And he also encouraged other labouring class and women poets, for example, Janet Little, who was called the Scotch milkmaid, who kind of, her poems were also published in 1792. There are other examples as well. There's Mary Leopold, who was a kitchen maid, who wrote a country house poem called Crumble Hall, and also Mary Collier, who 
who wrote the appropriately titled The Woman's Labour in 1739 in response to the Thresher poet Stephen Duck's poem, The Thresher's Labour. And she points out that it's okay for men, they just do one job. Women have to do everything when they come home. They've done their job, they come home and they also have to feed the children and cook the bacon. We think of Anne Yearsley, who was the milkmaid of Bristol. But all these women came from very humble backgrounds, labouring backgrounds. I think in the 18th century, we wouldn't use the term working class, it would be more labouring class. The editor of the book of Ellen Taylor's poems says that its purpose was to benefit her financially. But did it? There is a subscription list which suggests that some money was raised, but it's only, I think, about 42 subscribers. Interestingly, about 70% are women, which is quite unusual for this period, so that's interesting in and of itself. But it's very difficult to know how the writer of the introduction tracked her down, for one. Did this person actually track her down and find her and support her? Um, did she make any money beyond the subscription list? As I said, it's, it's quite a short one. There are only 10 poems in, in the volume, so one would kind of expect that the audience would be perhaps quite narrow for it. And we can glean from the introduction that after her time working as a servant, Ellen Taylor's circumstances became even more difficult. She now lives in a poor hut on the commons of Lyons, where to earn a scanty livelihood she keeps a small day school and receives a trifling pittance for teaching the poor children in that neighbourhood how to read and write. And then it makes it clear that she doesn't know that this subscription volume is being put together. It says, nor is she yet acquainted with the good fortune that may attend this endeavour to serve her. Sarah doesn't think the omens are good, that she ever enjoyed that good fortune. There's a kind of expectation that the fate of somebody like Ellen Taylor would not be a successful one, um, that she probably would have lived out her, her remaining years in poverty. One can only hope not, but in the light of any evidence to prove otherwise, I think that would be a strong possibility. There's a contradiction and a tension in Ellen Taylor's life and situation. If we go back to the poem we started with, written by the banks of the Barrowside, where she was sent to wash linen, her feelings on the education she has received are complicated. I think the poem overall seems to convey to me a sense of deep frustration, what we might in kind of modern terms call class alienation, which would mean that because she has this education, because she has this poetic sensibility, her feeling is more sensitive. She has a sensibility. Um, she has feelings. And as she says, I feel more sensibly. Um, it's a very an 18th century word that each blow dealt by relentless fate. And she's almost saying, if I wish I'd never had some of the education that I have, because if I did have cold insensibility, she says in the last stanza, then I would be free from grief um, and be more peaceful. So she's conflicted. It's a very poignant poem. It's a, it's a very powerful poem. Thy banks, O Barrow, sure must be the muse's choicest haunt. Else why so pleasing thus to me? Else why my soul enchant? To view thy dimpled surface here, fond fancy bids me stay, but servitude with brow austere commands me straight away. Were Lethe's virtues in thy stream, how freely would I drink? 
that not so much as on the name of books I e'er might think. I can but from them learn to know what misery's complete, and feel more sensibly each blow dealt by relentless fate. In them I oft have pleasure found, but now it's all quite fled. With fluttering heart I lay me down, and rise with aching head. For such a turn ill suits the sphere of life in which I move, and rather does a load of care than any comfort prove. Thrice happy she condemned to move beneath the servile weight, whose thoughts ne'er soar one inch above the standard of her fate. But far more happy is the soul who feels the pleasing sense and can indulge without control each thought that flows from thence. Since naught but these my portion is, but the reverse of each, that I shall taste but little bliss, experience doth me teach. Could cold insensibility through my whole frame take place, sure then from grief I might be free. Yes, then I'd hope for peace. next poet brings us forward to the 19th century and to a very different stratum of society. She was born in 1845, so her birth coincided with the famine. This is Dr. Sean Hewitt, teaching fellow at Trinity College Dublin and poet. Sean has contributed a chapter to the book Irish Women Poets Rediscovered about Emily Lawless. Despite being born in 1845, her life could hardly have been more different from that of starving peasants. She came from a very wealthy family, aristocracy on both sides. She grew up between a number of houses. Uh, so there's Castle Hackett and Galway, Castle Lyons and Kildare, her grandmother's house St. Clarence. So she, was, she had a lot of time to roam the grounds. Her family were very wealthy, not just wealthy, but I think we can say very wealthy. So she had a, a number of privileges that allowed her to become quite eccentric in a way. One of those privileges was receiving a good education, something denied to many women and many people in general at the time. And Emily Lawless had a particular interest in science. She was always quite interested in marine zoology. So um, she used to collect shellfish and jellyfish and she used to go dredging. But her primary interests, I would say, were moths and butterflies. 
So one of the places that Lawless most liked to collect was the Burren, uh, and she felt herself to have a particular affinity for the landscape. She describes being there for so long that the genius of the landscape stood up and walked beside her. So we get that sense. She's not an interloper in a landscape looking for things. She feels herself to be part of it and feels connected with it. So the wildflowers of the Burren and its butterflies and moss would be particularly interesting to her and she comments on those a lot. Her scientific observations in the burren led to a discovery. Emily Lawless discovered that the burnet moths on the burren had a role in pollination. Um, she noticed that there were no bees around and she wondered how the flowers were pollinating and she published a small note in a scientific journal and a few days afterwards Charles Darwin wrote to her to tell her how interesting he found it and to ask her to publish it in Nature, the big scientific journal of the day. We don't know if she did. At least there's no record in Nature of an article by Emily Lawless on that subject. Her scientific discovery also inspired a poem. This is a poem that simply looks at the burnet moth in the landscape of the Burren uh, and wonders why it's there. And it's a romantic poem full of exclamations and uh, set against quite a, a dark history. The, the poem has this historical depth to it as well as uh, a scientific interest. The reader is Cathy Belton. To that rare and deep red burnet moth, only to be met with in the burn. Sparkle of red on an iron floor in the fiercest teeth of this gale's wild roar. What has brought thee, O speck of fire, speaking of love and the heart's desire to a land so dead? Rocks gaunt and grim as the halls of death, sculptured and hewn by the wind's rough breath. Fortress-shaped, fantastic things, reared for some turbulent race of kings, Kings long since dead. Wind-blown pools where no herbs grow, Streams lost and sunk in the depths below, Where scant flowers bloom, where few birds sing, Thou, thou fliest alone, thou fire-winged thing, Small speck of red. Lawless, I think, had two primary interests. One of them was natural history and the other one was Irish history. And those two things come together in some ways in that as the Celtic revival, that movement of reviving um, Irish culture is underway, Lawless begins to link the two things together. So she's interested in creating uh, an Irish landscape and thinking what that means and thinking of the long history of it. So she writes a number of historical novels set in in the Desmond Wars, and those were actually very popular. And she also wrote a book of Irish history called The Story of Ireland. She was a unionist with a deep love of Ireland and, and a patriotism, which I think we might think of now as being at odds with her politics, uh, but actually it was integral to her politics. She was a, a proud Irish woman from the start all the way through. Her interest in history also emerges in her poems, including this one about the Battle of Fontenoy. The first section takes place before the battle, and there's a sense of anticipation about what lies ahead. The wind is wild tonight, there's battle in the air. The wind is from the west, and it seems to blow from Clare. 
Have you nothing, nothing for us, loud brawler of the night? No news to warm our heartstrings, to speed us through the fight? In this hollow, star-pricked darkness, as in the sun's hot glare, in sun-tide, moon-tide, star-tide, we thirst, we starve for Clare. Hark, yonder through the darkness, one distant rat-tat-tat. The old foe stirs out there. God bless his soul for that. The old foe musters strongly. He's coming on at last. And Clare's brigade may claim its own wherever blows fall fast. Send us, ye western breezes, our full, our rightful share for faith and fame and honour and the ruined hearts of Clare. The second section of the poem takes place after the battle, and as the ghosts of the dead soldiers return, the tone is very different. Mary Mother, shield us. Say what men are ye, sweeping past so swiftly on this morning sea. Without sails, our rowlocks merrily we glide, home to Kirkabaskin on the brimming tide. Jesus save you, gentry. Why are you so white, sitting all so straight and still in this misty light? Nothing ails us, brother. Joyous souls are we, sailing home together on the morning sea. Cousins, friends, and kinsfolk, children of the land, here we come together, a merry rousing band, sailing home together from the last great fight, home to Clare from Fontenoy in the morning light. Men of Kirkabaskin, men of Clare's brigade, hearken stony hills of Clare, hear the charge we made. See us come together, Singing from the fight, home to Kirkabaskin in the morning light. Emily Lawless died in 1913. There are obituaries of her that say she was the greatest living Irish novelist at the time. She was very proud of making her own money in her work. So she once chastised W.B. Yeats for being lazy and living off Lady Gregory's uh, money. And she was always had that pride in, in wanting to earn her own money. Her poetry was probably more popular than her novels, actually, with The Wild Geese in particular. And I think that's because you can read it as a nationalist book of poems, and it feeds very well into that, con that contemporary moment of people looking for stirring ballads. Her later poetry that we might think of as more concerned with natural history and with the natural world is less well-remembered and was less well-regarded at the time. And she died not in Ireland, but in England, in Surrey, where she'd gone for respite. She became ill towards the end of her life, and she lived with Lady Sarah Spencer, her long-term companion, to whom she left the house and its ornaments. But we can imagine her, perhaps in her final days, thinking back to her homeland and to her beloved Burren, celebrated here again in her poem, From the Burren. 
barren hills, grey barren hills. Soul of fierce Clare, wild west of all our west. No mildest tract of earth or strand thou seemest, such as dull maps and solemn charts attest. Here mid your solitudes, as mid the crowds, alike for me thou shinest realm apart. Open to all we pine for, pray for, hope. Sanctified homeland of the unchanging heart. Our next poet is close enough to the present day that I can meet someone who remembers her. Hello, Hello Jenny. Hi. Yeah, it's lovely, lovely to meet, to meet you. you. Come on, come on in. Thanks very much. And I've come to Lisburn in Northern Ireland to meet her. And down here, yeah, down to the right. Okay, thanks. My name is Jenny McLaren, and Frida Lawton was my grandmother. She didn't want to be called Granny, uh, maybe because it aged her, uh, maybe it was just too conventional. I had always assumed that it was because she loved cats, but we all grew up calling her Pussy Granny, and that has got shortened to Pussy over the years. She had a, a big three-storey house with, full of um, fascinating objects, and all her cats, many, many cats. Her garden um, was practically impassable, you know, uh, you had little garden paths that you went round uh, because she had nurtured so many plants and she knew them all by names. She actually pollinated some geraniums and called one Susan and I think she called one after me as well so it just did unusual things I mean her kitchen table was a potter's wheel you know that she has uh, like a board over and then a tablecloth on so I suppose at the time maybe I didn't really think she was eccentric but looking back she definitely was. Now where was she from originally? Bristol from Bristol and uh, she moved about um, she married her first marriage she then moved to Scotland then she came over to uh, Northern Ireland because her husband had got work with the Carnegie Trust and he died. And subsequently she remarried. And I think the, the fact that he was about to leave to go to the war maybe precipitated their marriage. And she then uh, moved to Dublin before coming up to Belfast. When you were a child, were you aware that she was a writer, a poet? Not as a young child, but later on, she would have referred to the poems that she wrote. And I, I, I'm not sure when I first became aware of the book, um, but we knew that she, yeah, I mean, I do remember there was always a book that had been published that was talked about, but she always said, frequently said, the muse departed. And so I, I'd assumed that there was one book and that was it. She never wrote anything after that. Little did I know. Jacqueline Allen has researched English and Irish women poets who published during the 1930s and 40s, and she's written about Frida Lawton in the book Irish Women Poets Rediscovered. The poetry collection is called A Transitory House. It was published in 1945 by British publisher Jonathan Cape, and it's, I think there's only 60 poems in that collection, but it's a very diverse piece of work. The poem Wild to the Sun, the Swan, opens the collection. It's a very image-heavy, very dense, a bit surrealistic. There's also, say, more darker poems. You have Nightly Slim Adventure Slide, where she actually goes into a dream-like state. You also get the war poetry, you get love poetry, um, you get Garden at Vinecash, which is a kind of carnivalesque, surrealistic description of a garden, like from a bug's eye view. So it's a very diverse piece of work. 
Frida Lawton's war poems include some that describe the lives of women at home. Here's her poem, The Evacuees, read here by Ingrid Craigie. There is no sound of guns here, nor echo of guns. The spasm of bombs has dissolved into the determination of the tractor. Our music now is the rasp of the corncrake and the wedge-shaped call of the cuckoo above leaves tranced in the lap of summer. We have discovered the grass, curled in the ditches. We have combed it with rakes in the hayfields and quaffed it in lion-coloured stacks. We have stroked milk, warm and gentle from the cow, the placid, primitive milk before bottles sterilise its mild wonder. We have met the bland smile of eggs in a willow basket, returned the stolid stare of cheeses ripening on the shelf, warmed ourselves at the smell of baking bread. We have seen food, the sacrament of life, not emasculate and defunct upon dishes, but alive, springing up from the earth after the discipline of the plough. Only around a thousand copies of Frieda Lawton's collection at Transitory House were ever published, and her granddaughter Jenny has a precious copy. So it is lovely to have this book and I'm pleased to have the original paper wrapper. So this one's particularly nice because it's dedicated to Charles, my mum's brother, and has a year and it's in her writing. A slim and lovely volume. A search by a friend of Jenny's for another copy of the book led to a fortuitous meeting. And it must have been during one of those searches uh, she found a reference to uh, Frida Lawton and the fact that she was a mysterious lady and nobody knew when she had died. And obviously she thought, well, I do know this lady. Um, she would have met her. And um, so she let me know. And I went on a bit of a search and I saw Emma's name was attached to a lot of the, the work and a lot of the writing. Emma is academic researcher Dr Emma Penny. Her interest in Frida Lawton was sparked some years ago. I first came across one of her poems when I was studying in my master's at Trinity and it was in a book by Lucy Collins, Poetry by Women in Ireland. But I was kind of intrigued because there was no date of death. So that's what really got me kind of thinking a little bit about this woman whose amazing poems are in this book, but why didn't we know where she went or when she died? Meanwhile, Jenny's friend had told her about this researcher called Emma who was looking for information on Frida Lawton. Out of the blue, Emma got a message. So I got an email one day from someone who said that they were Frida Lawton's granddaughter, who told me that, you know, not only was she there and that she had a relationship with Frida Lawton, but that Frida Lawton's daughter, to whom her first collection, A Transitory House, is actually dedicated to, Joe, was still alive and... From there, I just ended up being able to develop a very strong relationship with her daughter, Jo, and her granddaughter, Jenny. We actually met in a hotel on the outskirts of Lisburn, so I said to mum about it. We went out and Emma came and, you know, it was it was exciting because, I, you know, I, I know Emma was so um, familiar with my grandmother's work. In a sense, she knew a part of her that we didn't know almost as well as we knew her, if you know what I mean. You know, there was definitely, I got that sense from Emma that she really has an intimate relationship with the poetry. 
meeting the family also I was able to find out when she died and that 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 was a huge moment I think for a lot of people involved in this kind of movement to recuperate women poets in Ireland because the idea that such a talented poet that we wouldn't even know when she died so um she was born in 1907 and died in 1995 and it's nice to be able to say that now and Jenny and Joe had news for Emma that in addition to the one published book, they had boxes and boxes of archives. I would say there's hundreds, hundreds of poems and uh, maybe dozens of short stories. Um, and as for books of diaries, you know, you're probably into dozens of those as well. So it's a lot of material and tiny writing. I mean, it's really just the dream that you have when you begin a project, like trying to, to find answers about a woman poet like Lawton. And Emma began the task of working her way through all this newly unearthed writing. I feel like somewhere, you know, my grandmother knows and, uh, you know, I can see the connection that Emma has with the work and it has really brought it alive to me, which is, is just a lovely, lovely thing. In addition to all this unpublished work, Frida Lawton published poems in newspapers and journals. Jacqueline Allen again. Lawton published, as far as I'm aware, for about for five years. So we get her initial publications in the Bell starting in 1944. She has 10 poems published in the Bell. And then starting about 1946, she starts shifting over to the Irish Times, has several poems published there. Um, she also has one published in Rand, which was an Ulster Quarterly of Poetry. The published poems include one in particular that caused quite a stir, The Woman with Child. It was originally published in the Bell and got a bit of a reaction. Um, there was a letter to the editor by Patricia K. Harrison, who, I mean, when you read the letter, she basically objects to everything that Lawton does. <laughs> um, but particularly, she says, oh, this is just sensuous for sensuous sake, and it's not like real imagination. So, I mean, it's kind of reflective of the time. I mean, even though like to us today, this sounds like a beautiful poem, and you're actually not really seeing the pregnant body at the time, it was kind of controversial because... We're actually talking about pregnancy. Oh, my goodness. The Woman with Child How I am held within a tranquil shell As if I, too, were close within a womb I, too, enfolded as I fold the child As the tight bud enwraps the pleated leaf The blossom furled like an enfolded fan so life enfolds me as I fold my flower. As water lies within a lovely bowl, I lie within my life, and life again lies folded fast within my living cell. The apple waxes at the blossom's root, and like the moon, I mellow to the round, full circle of my being till I too am ripe with living and my fruit is grown. Then break the shell of life. We shall be born, my child and I, together, to the sun. For a few years, Frida Lawton was pretty successful at getting her work published. From the archive, we have letters from Ironmonger and from other people who were involved with the bell. For instance, 
constantly asking her for poetry. Do you have any more poetry? We want to publish you. Um, and so she was having like eight or nine, ten poems published in the Bell and constantly having her poetry published in the Irish Times as well. So she was definitely on the radar. And even when there was like large poetry readings taking place in Dublin, there was, you know, the usual suspects, including Patrick Kavanagh. And then there on the list is Frida Lawton, and the only woman present a lot of the time in these circles in Dublin in the 40s. I think subsequently, while she sent poets, poems off to be um, to publishers to look at, you know, they, they were rejected and maybe that knocked her confidence, but it didn't knock her desire to write. And that obviously went on throughout. There is evidence in the archive of her trying to get her second collection published for some time, you know, all throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, but she just wasn't getting anywhere anymore. The discovery of so much unpublished poetry by Frida Lawton now presents an opportunity. There is one fully formed um, collection and then there is evidence of another collection that is that was kind of like almost ready to go. But then beyond those two fully formed collections that have never been published, there are hundreds of poems in the archive. And really, I suppose now what I'm thinking is, what what do we do with these poems? Do we... Do we republish a transitory house? Do we revive a transitory house as a brilliant collection of poetry? Or do we put a collected poems together? So it's really that decision now, which I'm working out with her family, alongside her her daughter, Joe and her granddaughter, Jenny. I suppose we feel that the poetry and my grandmother's work is in safe hands with Emma. I feel that she um, has a real appreciation of it and that's a lovely thing. The women we've heard about in this programme wrote work that all adds to the richness of the story of Irish poetry, whether from a background of poverty like Ellen Taylor. She needs to be part of a broader history of Irish women's poetry in the 18th century and beyond, and also take her place as an important example of a labouring class poet who was published in this period. Or from the wealthiest ranks of society, we should remember Emily Lawless primarily as a fantastic poet. We should also remember her as someone who brings together two things that are not often considered part of Irish poetry, and that is the scientific with the revivalist imagination. And I think without her, the landscape of revivalist poetry and Irish poetry during this time is, is much impoverished or poets who came to Ireland from elsewhere, like Frida Lawton, and whose work may not fit into neat categories of Irish poetry. If we don't remember her and read her work and understand it, we won't understand contemporary Irish poetry. We won't understand the history of how Irish poetry is developed. And I think it's, it's, it's about bringing a missing link into the chain so that we can more fully understand, really, more deeply, our literary history here. The recent discovery of so much of Frida Lawton's unpublished work gives us a glimpse of how many voices and how much poetry may be still out there, just waiting to be found. And surely all of them could relate to this final poem by Frida Lawton, read here by her granddaughter, Jenny McLaren. All that has made this I. For but a little space permit me this. Let me lean back against my life a while, stop my world turning. Reflect the moods and passages of all my years till now in the long mirror of my sombre thought. 
All I have known of places, people, things, are part of this long body tenuous self of my unthreaded time. Gone, they live on in me, cell of my cell, honey, each day's experience hived and shrined in an impregnant wax. Before the rest and wines, if there be more, first let me taste, savour what is of gall, what cumulate sweetness. Else be the real unwinded quite, no length remain for anchor while I crane to see all that has made this eye. That third episode of the series Sublimer Wishes was presented and produced by Claire Cunningham. And the contributors were Sarah Prescott, Sean Hewitt, Jocelyn Allen, Emma Penny and Jenny McLaren. The poems of Ellen Taylor were read by Paula McGlinchey, Emily Lawless's were read by Cathy Belton, and the work of Frida Lawton by Ingrid Craigie and Frida Lawton's granddaughter, Jenny McLaren. All three poets are included in Irish Women Poets Rediscovered, published by Cork University Press and edited by Maria Johnston and Connor Linney. Sublimer Wishes is a Rockfinch production for RTE Lyric FM and sound supervision was by Tin Pot Productions. And that programme is available to podcast from the Lyric Feature webpage, from the RTE radio player and from other podcast platforms where you'll also find the two previous episodes of the same series, Sublimer Wishes.